0: Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the weirdness. Why are we wearing bras on our heads? The history. Live aid. We're coming together. And the simple pleasures. All oh, I need to hear some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Welcome to Stuck in the 80s. That, of course, is the 1982, dare I say, classic Mexican radio. Mexican radio. All of voodoo. Hey, it's Steve Spears with TampaMay.com, and with me, my cohort, Kathy Wass.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: And we're here extending our little podcast venture into the year 1982. We've got a special surprise for you today.
1: Oh, I'm so excited. We
0: have an interview with former Walla Voodoo frontman Stan Ridgway. Yes. In case you're waiting for the uh, soulful and squealy voice, I might add, of Sean Daly, he is not with us today again.
1: He has been uh, kidnapped by uh, American Idol fans. They're still mad. No, actually, he's still on the road with uh, Poison and Cinderella. He is.
0: I'm sure – and he's a huge Stan Ridgway fan, so I know he's disappointed that he couldn't I be know. here for that. So if you're, if you're a big Sean Daly fan, go ahead and turn the podcast off right now. I know. But Just, if you do, you're going to miss one of the best interviews we've ever done.
1: Exactly. You're going to miss a good one. Don't do it.
0: So without further ado. Stan Ridgway, welcome to the Stuck in the 80s podcast.
2: Are we really stuck here, you guys? Uh, <laughs>
0: Kath, Kathy and I are stuck in the yes. 80s. Do you, you probably, you probably are not stuck in the 80s.
2: No, I'm not. I I try to live in the in the present day. But uh, are you guys stuck there most of the time?
0: Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. no, I guess it's a bad thing.
2: Well, somebody's got to do it.
1: Steve probably about 90 percent of the time. Me, 60 uh, uh-huh. percent of the time. So.
2: Well, it's an interesting decade. So. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Somebody's got to, got to, you know, sit at the helm and and steer the ship. So I'm happy to be here with you.
0: Take take us back to the beginning before the '80s. Um, oh boy, now that's another thing. <laughs> take, now where are we going? Tell tell us how you got involved with music and and when you decided to make it your profession.
2: I've been playing music since I was about twelve, I guess. Now before that, I was uh, quite. Um, Involved in a, uh, I guess, a fantasy of my own that had to do with show business, <laughs> and so um, I was always interested in singing, and I started to sing, I guess, at about three or four, and um, I would sing show tunes that my parents had collected records like, uh, I guess, like Showboat and <laughs> um, Old Man River was a favorite of mine, and um, you know, three-year-old kid singing a song by a, you know, some. Some slave that's like 80 years old
0: exactly
2: you know <laughs> exactly. So, you don't remember. um I, you don't... I was i was not encouraged but i wasn't discouraged along this <laughs> line of, of hobby
0: tell and, me those uh, tell me those tunes don't still haunt you today
2: well i i do still sing them sometimes oh. and uh i i i uh I, i've on occasion sung with a uh a big band here in north hollywood that comes out every now and then and i'll play uh, uh little guitar with them and also sing things like um oh you know um oh you know girl from I- Ipanema or uh, some bossa nova show beam and and uh some some of course some chairman of the board gotta sing some of that and um so yeah I, I kind of started doing that and then I got involved in um ventriloquism I uh really oh. took took it took that to town and I had a <laughs> a, a lot of puppets and And ventriloquist dummies. I didn't have many jokes. That was my problem. I was, (laughs) I had a good technique, but I really had nothing to talk about. Exactly. And um, I would put on uh, block parties for the kids there in the neighborhood with my dummies and things. And it wasn't until about twelve, I guess, that um, I heard the sound of a banjo, and that really struck me. I built a little little cigar box banjo, as they call it, uh, with rubber bands and a stick. Oh yeah, with a little box, you know, and kind of would perform in front of my my parents, and um, get them to maybe get me one, you know. <laughs> so after a lot of, uh, you know, cajoling on my part, they did get me a banjo, and from there, I guess, you know, the rest is history. I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> Where, what, what decade are we in now?
0: I, I think we're, we're the,
2: I think we're in the late '60s now or okay. early '60s. <laughs> Is there a show for that?
0: Oh God! You yeah. know, everyone we get grief every once in a while that we should do a "Stuck in the '70s" or "Stuck in the '90s" show, but uh-huh. those, we don't. We don't have the same connection to those uh, times. Do well, you? Do you remember any of your early uh, musical influences?
2: Ah, uh, well, I, I of course uh, one of the first records that haunted me was a record by Marty Robbins, and it was called "Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs," and um, Marty Robbins was a great. Uh, country western singer although he did a lot of other things too that were kind of a borderline I guess rock or pop of the day one of them was a white sport coat and a pink carnation that was a song of his that was on the hit parade but uh, I wasn't aware of that song when I first heard his album called Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs now on there is a song called El Paso and maybe you know that one yeah and um, the whole uh, scope of that song really struck me terms of uh, how to tell a story within a song. It was like a movie.
1: Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Nighttime would find me in Rose's cantina. Music would play and Ferdinand would whirl.
2: As I learned more about music, I was very lucky to take guitar lessons from a fellow who was teaching there in Pasadena at the time, named David Lindley. And David Lindley, maybe you've heard of him. He's a great guitar player. He played with Jackson Brown and other things. And at at that time, he had a band that was, um, I guess this was uh, 66 or something. Uh, In the psychedelic era, he had a band called Kaleidoscope, and they played around quite a lot in the Southern California area at that time. But uh, uh, David Lindley pointed me to a lot of music that I probably would have taken me longer to find on my own and um he would he would say stan you've got to listen to to a howlin wolf i'd say "Ooh, what's that is that an animal you know (laughs) and then find out it's a guy you know and he sounds like this and it sounds like wow and so from there you've got to listen to lightning hopkins you've got to listen to all these blues people and so then i not long not not soon after that I, I became a, a blues man or, or maybe a blues boy, I don't know. <laughs> I would go to school dressed in a black coat and black pants and black shirt, kind of hang out there in the parking lot looking for cigarettes. And that became my persona for a while, I guess. And as I moved forward in music from those blues influences, a lot of the things opened up to uh, jazz and formal music and the avant garde, I guess you'd call it. I, I think by nineteen 19- 71, I think every other word out of my mouth was (laughs) avant-garde. And um, I was quite a a snob, I think, in in that regard. I was studying guitar and played a lot of guitar in in any band I could get into or start. Played the hits of the day and played other jazz things and things like that. And I guess it just kind of rolled along to tie this up, I guess. You know, I mean, everybody that was a musician, as the 70s rolled on, it became... Uh, harder and harder to find any place to play original music, you know, so,
1: yeah,
2: um, so, uh, to pull forward very quickly, I guess, <laughs> is that, uh, you know, when punk rock showed up in a, right around the end of 1976, I six I'd really uh, found myself uh, out of the playing period of, of music and I'd started a small uh, concern in a Hollywood Boulevard office that I called Acme Soundtracks. Uh, I was way, way past insane at this point, actually, and, um, <laughs> I had a desk in there and a a phone and a blackboard and a file cabinet, nothing much in it really <laughs> but um i i i my idea was was that I was going to start a science fiction kind of low budget soundtrack company oh. that would uh supply uh cheap soundtracks for cheap films yeah and um one of my friends was a was a worker in one of the film companies in Hollywood that made exploitation movies, for want of any better term. Uh, I was, was doing some music for their trailers that went out to, like, the drive-ins in Kentucky and stuff. They had movies like uh, The Sinful Dwarf.
1: Oh. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, uh,
2: Son of the uh, Goat Man, you know, <laughs> things like this. And um, they would throw in a bit of a, of a well, you know, uh, a little bit of a, a minor nudity to, to get the whole thing going, I yes. guess. Because other than that, there really wasn't much to it. No. But, so I had this company there, and then as I looked across the street one day, there was a rehearsal hall that was opening up beneath the, the uh, Pussycat Theater there on Hollywood Boulevard, which later on turned into uh, the punk club, The Mask. Oh. And um, when that came along, I, I looked at that as any good uh, musical opportunist would, and I said, hmm, maybe that's a place where we could play original <laughs> music. Exactly. So, uh, make a long story short, or a longer story even longer, is um, that eventually Acme Soundtracks turned into the the group Wall of Voodoo, with uh, with me <laughs> me hoping, uh, <laughs> me doing my best to lead it, uh, drive the train, and um, uh, it, it it kind of we started to to play uh, live shows out in out in the in the hinterlands and in the neighborhood there, and um, we found that there were at least twenty five people that wanted to hear. Something original, so it was kind of a blast at that <laughs> point, and started up, up a whole kind of new creative period that I guess took us into the to the '80s that we're now stuck in. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> right.
0: The uh, you actually sing the history of the band, don't you, in the song "Talking Wall of Voodoo Blues Part One"? On well,
2: I, yes, I, I I wasn't aware that you had that track. Didn't one no MTV, in one no VH1, was a time so long. Seven. Now two are gone to heaven. There it is. Uh, it is part one. I, it was much longer than that. That song. I was out in the backyard here at one point with a with a slide guitar, and I'd said to myself, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna write some kind of slide blues thing." This was my goal, and I started to sing. Um, well, you know. Uh, you know, the devil got my woman, and <laughs> I'm down like a diving duck. And I, I thought to myself, that really doesn't sound very authentic coming from me. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if the devil ever really did get my woman. I'm not, not, not aware. Not but, that you're aware of. No. But so as I started to kind of get into that kind of a groove, what kind of popped out of my mouth at one point was something along the lines of the song there, where it was kind of a blues tune about a band. And it turned out to be a band called Wall of Voodoo, yeah. and I thought, "Huh, well, this is probably good because Wall of Voodoo needs a, it needs a song, it needs a story song for itself." And, it does, you know. Um, once I got involved with it, it was very hard to stop. So, how, how is. true
0: is the the how true is the song to the actual history of the band?
2: Well, I think it's it's uh, true uh, as far as uh, everything, I guess. I mean, hmm. there's really no. Um, I <laughs> I had to actually <laughs> shorthand a lot of it actually. So right. um it's all there, yeah. I mean yeah. the um sometimes I'm asked uh, you know, what's this Yogi Bear business, you know, and um uh in the song and the original rhythm machine for Walla Hoodoo was a gift to me from the uh, iconic voiceover artist Dawes Butler.
1: Oh okay. and
2: I was friends with his son, who was another mask person and um He was a drummer, and one day going over to Charles Butler's house, I noticed there were a lot of um, cartoon cells on the wall of Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear and Captain Crunch. And I said, hey, so what's this? And Charles said, well, my dad's Yogi Bear. (laughs) And I said, oh, really? Well, wow. And he's also the voice of Beanie from Beanie and Cecil from the old, uh, you know, Stan Freeberg and Dawes Butler show. This is going back a bit further than Stuck in the 80s. (laughs) That's okay. Okay. Well, anyway, um, the rhythm machine that's on the uh, song Mexican Radio is Dawes Butler's rhythm machine that he gifted to me after I played it too often (laughs) in his house, and he yelled at me and said, Take it home.
1: Take it home. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to
2: hear it anymore. I don't like it. Stan, take it home. So I, I did. I said, thank you very much, and I took it home and immediately turned all the bossa novas and things up full speed. And... um. Plugged it into a twin reverb amp with two 12-inch speakers and a 60-watt power source. And I thought to myself, that sounds pretty dang good. Yeah. And so that rhythm machine was then placed on top of my Farfisa organ, which I was playing at that point. And I was still playing guitar, but I kind of had abandoned it for a while because I, I became overeducated. I crudely started to stab at the keyboard in what I considered to be my keyboard claw method, which is really just <laughs> two fingers on each hand. And um, out came the sound that was kind of a basis for for, uh, uh, an inspiration that became Wall of Voodoo.
1: Very cool.
0: Yeah, it's funny because Mexican radio wasn't really a top 40 hit at the time. But when when we ask um, fans of the 80s to name some of the more definitive tunes from the decade, it's usually – Mexican radio is usually the first – one of the first three songs that comes out of their mouth.
2: What happens to it after it comes out of their mouths?
0: I think I don't know. Any, I don't know a single person who doesn't like it or doesn't. It's true. Who doesn't brighten up at the memory of it or the video about it?
2: Well, it still seems to have some resonance. I, I, I still sing it uh, in in the show every now and then when I feel like it.
0: i going to say you do you and, still uh, enjoy do you still enjoy performing it? Or oh is it?
2: oh yeah sure you know, the song really is, is is the germ of the song came from Mark Morland, uh, who's uh, recently passed away. Yeah or four years ago yeah. um, from uh, liver disease, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I know. And so. um,
2: Mark ha- came in one day with this, this phrase that, that, well, we would go to rehearsal a lot and sit in the car and drive to rehearsal, and we would try and find, you know, a, a Mexican radio station on our AM dial there in my old 67 Mustang. And when we would find one, we would say, hey, great, we're on a Mexican radio. <laughs> And so um, we used to like to listen to the sound of something we didn't understand. And also, as the song developed, it became kind of, at least to me, I think for for Mark, Mark had had the lick and he had, I'm on a Mexican radio kind of mumbled into a cassette. And when I heard that, I I suddenly thought that, you know, this wasn't just a Mexican radio. It kind of harkened back to the fifties for me when um, rock and roll was prohibited in the United States. And disc jockeys like Wolfman Jack, you know, uh, were across the border just south of Los Angeles playing kind of outlaw music, you know, on AM dials, Mexican radio stations that were out of reach of the FCC. Yeah. Uh, but with enough wattage, you know, 100,000 watts or something, to broadcast in North America, you know, in the middle of the night and flying across and, and stuff. So the song's genesis was like that. And so as it developed, you know, we. We, we we all threw in our two bits. Uh, you know, Joe added his great percussion to it. And, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 we found other sounds to place into it. And, and uh, Richard Mazda was a producer that showed up from England to help us with our second full-length record, which was Call of the West. And that was the first song that we recorded. And we, record, we, we uh, re- recorded it in a, just a weekend. And that was it. And when we finished it, we all kind of knew, like, you know, which is pretty dang catchy. Yeah.
1: Now, now, what
2: do we do? You know, we finished the rest of the record, and that became kind of a calling card for us. Although the song itself, I don't know if there's any other song like that song on that album. But it was interesting because I think people that bought uh, or listened to Mexican radio and then found the, the album Call of the West, perhaps got a little bit more than they bargained for <laughs> when they heard the rest of the record because uh, um, the record isn't uh, the whole record isn't as uh, as uh, cheerily zany, I guess, as, uh, as as Mexican radio, although it turned out to be a great calling card for the rest of the record.
0: The uh, video is probably just as famous as the song is. Do you have any memories or stories of what it was like to, to shoot that?
2: Uh, yeah, it's hard to forget. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the record company at the time did not want to spend money to make a video. And um, on us, we were always down there, you know, Trying to beg for any promotional dollars we could we could get yeah. to promote the group. We were all signed to to them as as contract musicians in a group, but for that trade off, we didn't seem to get much in return. So when MTV started up, I said to myself, "I said, well, this is an opportunity to get something like a film up there, you know, instead of just us on a blue screen or or some picture of an egg frying or something. You know, <laughs> exactly. you know we could actually make a, a film and." Mm-hmm. Uh, Next door to my office on Hollywood Boulevard was a friend of mine named Frank D'Elia, and he was a filmmaker and a photographer, although he'd never made a music video before. And um, we uh, sketched out the synopsis of what we wanted to do, just argued our way into getting it, you know, I think it was $10,000. And that's all we spent to make that video. Now, we did have to go to Mexico on Labor Day weekend, and that was really, I don't know, we, we, we... we, we're lucky we got back, you know, <laughs> that's all I could say. <laughs> we're really lucky we got back, you know. And We met police down there, and we were rolling around, taking kind of a cinema verite approach, you know. Now, the end of the video is really a an amalgamation of a lot of ideas that were uh, tried out or sketched out for a song called Factory that's on the Call of the West record. On Factory, it was my desire to masquerade as a meatloaf uh in the end of the tune if we were going to do a video for that uh, a little bit like the old Lewis Carroll uh Alice in Wonderland movie where uh, if you remember the way Humpty Dumpty looked as WC fields and this kind of uh, face within a mask you know yeah. so i i really wanted to build some sort of meatloaf and at the end the the uh wife in in character in the song factory would open the stove and i would sing some of that from this meatloaf face <laughs> well we didn't do factory but i still had a desire to be some sort of food <laughs> And um, so we, we quickly wrangled up this idea that we'd get a big salad bowl and cut a hole in the bottom of it and get a lot of beans, and then I would come up through the beans at the end of the song and sing that Mexican radio line there and and hopefully, you know, scare the pants off everybody. <laughs> but I actually, I, I, I actually scared my own pants off because it was such a, a mess. I had to kind of get down to my skivvies there and and uh, come up through that bean uh, hole there with the salad thing, because um, it was all leaking down at the same time, and I was breathing with a straw for about five minutes. Oh, and, um, no. Yeah, it was a little bit like scuba diving. You know? <laughs> exactly.
0: Except but, in baked uh, beans.
2: But um, that, that was that, and we also called in a lot of friends from uh, the Hollywood area that were character actors and other circus people, I guess, um, to be in the video. And, um, and uh, uh, it, it worked out that it seemed to coincide with when m t v needed things to play, you see, yeah uh, it was a time that really was quite uh you know there's a lot of energy because it certainly seems very innocent now compared to these days, but uh, oh yeah, they really did want to play things that were different or unusual or or unheard of, and um for a short while that 's the way it was, yeah
0: now, how long was it after that record broke that you ended up leaving the band
2: we um We went off and played a lot, of course, with that record, Call of the West, being our fuel. And um, as it went on, I found myself kind of alienated from the rest of the band. I I think they, in some ways, I mean, uh, we do all talk now, um, the people that are still alive. um, Unfortunately, uh, Joe Danini, our original drummer there, also has passed away about four years ago from a brain hemorrhage. And um, uh, I still talk with Chaz uh, quite frequently and Bill, uh, who was our keyboard player um, on that tour. I talk with all the time. He's an old high school buddy of mine. But at, right around at the end of 1983, it was just very hard to make any more new music with what was going on. And we did just kind of take a break for a while and just say, oh, well, you know. And then as I kind of took a longer break, I realized that I really needed to get my uh head together around a lot of different things and it was just hard for me at that point to kind of mend up with everybody else and i went off on my own about about 1983
0: and then you recorded uh shortly after that you recorded the big heat
2: yes that was my first solo record yeah
0: i remember i remember i actually bought that uh in college i think my freshman year at university of florida in Gainesville. and the guy in the record store he, he like lit up when i brought it up to the uh to the counter to buy it. I guess he was, he was a big fan too and uh, he ended up putting the uh, the record on the store's turntable and we sat there and listened to it start to finish that whole afternoon and about a half dozen other people came up to us asking, you know, who is that? What is that record? And ended up buying it as well.
2: Well, I thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Never well, dreamed I would actually have the opportunity to tell you that story. So,
2: Oh, you know. I mean, it's funny about records and the people who make them, you know, uh, when when all is said and done at the end of the day, if it's taken a while to make a record, uh, the person that's made it is probably the least likely to enjoy it because uh they hear of the flaws in it and, and some of the things that um maybe could have been improved or other things and if you get as you get more distance from anything you do, of course uh things always sound better, but uh finishing something is is, is really uh you know the be all end all of an art. You really have to pull that thing To fruition over the finish line and I was I was lucky enough to have a song on that record that I I didn't even really know if I would if I was going to include it it was a song called Camouflage
0: and it really didn't
2: do much in the uh, United States but it took off like a rocket over in Europe and I found myself uh, touring most of the time that year and into the next into um, the UK and and Germany and Italy and all over the uh, European continent there was marching along with this song called Camouflage, which I I still play on as well. I was a PFC on a search patrol, hunting Charlie down. It was in the jungle wars of 65. My weapon jammed and I got stuck way out and all alone. And I could hear the enemy moving in close outside.
0: How is uh, storytelling via songwriting different for you today than it was... You know, say twenty-five years ago when you were just uh, starting your solo career.
2: How is it different?
0: Is it different?
2: Well, I, I'm not quite sure of what you're asking. You mean is, is it is it uh are there different stories to tell?
0: Well, I mean, do you what is it about uh, what is it today that inspires you to to write songs? What do, what do you find um, that makes you want to tell a story via a song in today's world?
2: Um. Well, I I, I really look at it like. Uh, that every song is just kind of part of a symphony, you know. I I, I just consider myself a, a creative person, and and the reason I do create is because I just can't stand to sit and to hear and just let everything else come at me. <laughs> so it has a lot to do with my own self-image. I I assume you know uh, I, I need to make up you know another pie to throw in the face of the people that are throwing pies at me. If if it's if it's culture. Or um modern life or uh, you know frustrations of uh of relationships or or politics or or uh you know just just humanity in general, a lot of it can be aggravating oh yeah so so uh, sometimes those ideas turn into a story as a way to i guess get back you see so it, it's it's hard to know where they actually begin but but i I consider anything that you can sing a song so some things might start as just a phrase in the car. I might beat on the dashboard or something. That's actually a very good way to start. And um, from there, it moves along into a to an area that n- n- seems to kind of have a life of its own.
1: I was wondering too if you could tell us a little bit about um, one of your side projects, drywall, because we were uh, uh-huh. listening to the hidden track number sixteen earlier today. And oh up.
0: yes, yeah. love it hmm Love it. It says everything. It took a while
2: to, to uh, cut up and translate. We had to translate that into, its, uh, into what he was actually saying. The American flag
0: stands for corporate
2: scandals, recession, stock market declines, blackmail, burning with hot irons, mutilation with electric drills, cutting out tongues, terror, mass murder, and rape. All I could say about that track is it was, it was really untitled. And it's this, the hidden track, number 16, on the new drywall record, Barbecue Babylon. You know, summer's not over yet, folks. (laughs) And if you're going to have a barbecue, what you should do is head your browser to stanridgway.com and purchase the brand new drywall record, Barbecue Babylon. It's the third installment in the trilogy of apocalyptic documents that started back in 1992. Now, that may sound a bit cryptic, but if you go to stanridgway.com, and go to the purchase page, you'll find that record there, and there'll be more information on it that you can read about. Uh, drywall is a kind of a trio, uh, kind of an experimental noise band that Getra uh, and I started back in the uh, early 90s as a way to use a lot of the old equipment in our closet here.
1: Oh see, and not, recycling. not it just to
2: get dusty, so we pulled out a lot of the old, uh, you know, instruments and a lot of the old wall of voodoo instruments and kind of plugged them all in and, you know, lit him on fire let him go <laughs> i guess drywall's a way to uh kind of uh make sense of all the detrius and a lot of the uh, trash out there and and to kind of document the the, the uh, coming apocalypse i i, I guess really <laughs> and so uh there's a lot of humor in it uh uh i would kind of say drywall's a little bit like um i was kind of think it's 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 probably for people that uh maybe might know that uh, it's 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 kind of like a well what am i trying to say it's pop art i think yeah it's oral pop art
0: did i read somewhere that you're performing again now with uh wall of voodoo
2: we did do a show at the orange county fair that was um it started out as the idea of a reunion and that was uh, in july but at the last moment uh chaz who had thought about maybe playing uh, declined and said that he wasn't able to do it. So we were already there. So I guess a reunion really turned into a Wall of Voodoo revival of a sound and a style from back then. And um, we had a good time doing it.
0: Any chance you'll be uh, doing it with him again soon?
2: Well, you know, anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I can say at this point. Yeah. I in uh, October I'm I'm actually off on my own tour to the UK, which I haven't been to in several years. Uh, as a special guest to the band Para Ubu, which for all you eighties listeners out there, you know uh that oh, yeah. was a very influential band on all of us who made yeah, very music much so. in the eighties yep. and um David Thomas is also included in that that uh, uh, rogues gallery record also he oh. does um what do you do with a drunken sailor <laughs> to, to to let that be known that's a great track but uh that's what i'm doing in october and into November, but as I say, I don't know. We'll see what you know. Anything can happen here in this time.
0: Well, that's great. Well, we appreciate you joining us today. It's been uh, fantastic.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Well,
2: thanks for having me, you guys. Um, of oh, course. Cool. Uh, I never know what to expect when someone calls uh, <laughs> saying that they're stuck in the 80s. s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that's... I'm happy to have found out that um that the the, the view is a little wider than I I yes. I'd I'd, uh, I'd prepared myself for <laughs> so. <laughs> I do appreciate it.
1: Oh yes, thank you. Good luck on
2: your tour. Thanks a lot, you guys. Okay. All right. B- bye bye. Over bye-bye. and out. <laughs> I had this rhythm box that I got from Yogi Bear, Then Joe and Chaz jumped on to play, and we practiced music night and day, <laughs>
1: <laughs> night and day.
0: Woo, I'm spent.
1: Oh man.
0: That was that oh. was forty minutes of pure pleasure. It was. <laughs> In fact, after our original line of questioning with Stan, he stuck around with us on the phone for a little while longer. So if you're really interested, stick around after the credits and hear an additional 10 minutes of our interview with Stan Ridgway. In the meantime, Kathy, Steve, and the mysterious Sean. Sean. Kathy and Steve are stuck in the 80s. Sean is stuck in the back of an American Idol car. (laughs) (laughs) See you then. Bye. Duck in the Eighties is produced by the online departments of Tampa Bay.com and TBT. The producer is Mr. Dave Morrison. If you'd like to read our blog, it's at blogs.tampaBay.com slash 80s. And remember you can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes.
2: Yeah, got the the station to talk about the US inflation.
1: Okay, Stan. Thank you.
2: Okay, is that Dave? That's Dave it's again. Dave. Okay, you guys. That was fun. Did I talk too much? No, no, you talked, no. Yeah, not that was at perfect. All. We'll it's have the it on coffee. <laughs> it's the coffee. Yeah.
0: Wow. It really was a thrill talking to you. Yes, if, thank I've, you. I mean, uh, I don't remember this for a long time.
2: Well, thanks, you guys. Just you know, I I, I really truly appreciate it, and for you know, from me and the rest of the band that's that's still here on planet Earth, uh, we thank you for. For playing
0: the song oh, sure thanks. great well uh, if you if you like I'll email you a link to the to the podcast show when it's online and if, oh I would love that you can you know,
2: to... then then we'll we'll try and link it to uh to our site oh that'd be oh, perfect okay, cool you know
0: yeah we linked we linked uh to your the uh, the Bush and barbecue song today off our blog oh. and I think we also linked to your site too because we were we were trying to get our fans pumped up for it because uh, I know they're all big fans of you.
2: Gosh, that's great. Now were you guys in Florida? Yep. Tampa yeah. Bay. Uh huh, Tampa
0: Bay. Yeah. Yeah, we've been doing the podcast now for a little over a year. Mm-hmm. And uh it just it took it took off on us and uh, we didn't really know if anyone was listening, and suddenly we were getting emails from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Russia.
2: Yeah, wow. I know the internet is amazing. I know it. How it connects everybody and um, how everybody can find music, you know. I mean sometimes I'll sit there and say, Whatever whatever quote happened to, you know, and I'll look that person up, and he's right there, and they're playing shows. Oh, I know. And they're out, and they're doing things. It's just interesting. You know, um, once uh, somebody had an interview with the folk singer Pete Seeger, and I remember this, and they were um, saying, well, Pete, you know, it seems like folk music is coming back. And he got very angry, and he said, said, coming back, you know, (laughs) what are you talking about? It's never left. It's just not on television. (laughs) So true, God. So, you know. That that aspect of that, you know, radar, the big television radar. But there's so much great music still out there, you know, uh, old and new, of course. Yeah. to find, and the internet's really helpful with that.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's sort of uh, it's sort of it's given music its own little revolution again that it yeah. really needed.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, Stan, this is Dave again. I loved hearing that story about uh, about border radio, uh, because when I first saw Mexican radio, I thought somebody in this group knows about. You know the the Mexican radio stations and just the whole sound of it—that was great.
2: Oh yeah, I made, I, I definitely uh, uh, I, I remember Wolfman Jack too. XCRB. Oh, you uh, here in in California—that's what you'd get.
1: Right, right.
2: And um, you know he played a lot of the old blues stuff. What a great broadcaster! I used to run into him at the Mayfair Market in Hollywood <laughs> when he would be he'd be in town. You know, late late at night, like three or four in the morning and he was he was just a great guy. I remember going, "Hey, Wolfman Jack." He goes, "Hello there." He said, <laughs> you know, he's just wonderful.
1: You must have loved uh, American Graffiti then when that that whole scene of him in that movie. Uh, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean that I was mean, you know, Southern California, that whole thing. Oh, yeah. Now yeah. where where were you living when you were a kid? I mean, when you heard that?
2: Well, I, I I I grew up in Barstow till I was about 8. And okay. Then now, I moved into Los Angeles from is, there. Is and Barstow
1: then, farther I mean, it's farther south near the border?
2: No, Barstow's like more like near Palm Springs, about halfway to Palm Springs. Oh, okay. It's more like high desert area out there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, because of the, you know, XERB in particular had 100,000 watts. Right. It had had 100,000 watts right over the border in Tijuana. And so it it, it traveled all the way up to Canada.
1: Right. Oh,
2: okay. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, George Lucas would listen to Wolfman Jack from wherever he was, and that's why he, he was in that film, too. Right, right. But no, no, the FCC couldn't get at these people. It was, it was, it wasn't until later that Wolfman Jack was hired in America for shows like, you know, Midnight Special, and you know, as the host and things like this.
1: So he actually got his start in Mexico. As oh a... yeah. Okay.
2: Oh yeah, Wolfman Jack was like broadcasting for I don't know at least a half dozen years from Mexico. Oh okay. Oh. And he had no, there was no playlist, there was no. There was nothing. he just played what he liked, oh man, and then he would just howl over it, just just like an American graffiti. That's what the show <laughs> sounded like that's so cool that's great, yeah it was it was very outlaw like and the yeah. you know the f c c is like, how can we get these guys? They're broadcast, you know, it's got a big huge antenna across the border, just barreling down on everybody.
1: What do you think of the music business today?
2: well, I guess it's it's kind of like not as much fun, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean yeah. really, uh. I, I, you know, the 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 kind of um, the fun of it is. You know, I mean, the music business for me is great because I'm not in the business. <laughs> I'm in my own business. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. And so I put out my own records yeah. and I have my own little label, and I have my own little, uh, you know, niche of, of of what I do musically. And uh, it's very manageable. And um, I, I really enjoy going out and playing. And I've always loved to just you know, play music and write songs and I don't really complicate it very much. It's always like some new project I'm working on with somebody and and when it's time to get it out we just simply make it up and put it out. Now, you know, now it's just I you know, I I, people are are in focus groups and there's branding going on and someone makes a record and it doesn't come out for three years. Yeah. And um I guess really it's it's what you might call the deconstruction of the music business, and I, I think it's basically headed to, you know, more independence.
0: Hmm. Wow. Sure. Interesting.
2: There are a lot of uh, people that are in the music business now that really aren't musical. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, years ago, of course, there were more musical people involved. Maybe somebody who was a failed trombone player. You know. Yeah. Right. But just couldn't. Couldn't cut it on the trombone, <laughs> so he went in and he started working at a record company. But he still had a musical mind.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
2: And um and loved music. And there's loved a lot of it. People That's that,
1: the thing. Yeah. yeah
2: you don't have people, that anymore. Yeah. Well, there's just more more people involved in the music business now that just look towards the you know the shortfall. And um, it's very hard for anybody to develop. I think at any of those companies, they're larger bigger, and bigger, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, you know Aretha Franklin really didn't have a, a breakthrough record until her fourth or fifth album. You know, Yeah. and I guess if Aretha Franklin was a young person now, and it didn't happen after that second record, we'd never hear yeah. "Respect" or "Chain of Fools." You know. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot that there's a lot that's missing out there. At the same time, um, you know, if you have a if you have the desire, uh, nothing will stop you from making music.
0: Well, wise words.
2: Well, I gotta go, guys. Okay, okay. we appreciate hey, all the time you spent with us. Excellent, yes, thank so, you. Uh, thanks again. I really appreciate you guys playing. Thanks. We thanks. do too. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.